Well, good morning. The freedom that we have in Christ is what brings us here together in this morning to look at the scriptures together. Today we are going to continue in the themes that we've been talking about. We've talked about praying, we've talked about giving. This morning we looked at sending, and now we'd like to look at the theme of going. So I'm going to start this morning. I have five names, and I want you to look at these five names and want to see if you can see what these five names have in common. So here we go. By the way, we're looking for one thing that all five of these have in common that nobody else has in common. All right, so here we go. We've got Balaam to start off the, the lineup, Elijah, Moses, we have some ideas already, Jeremiah, and Jonah. All right, five names. All right, if you're thinking Old Testament, good. All right, we're, we're moving in the right direction, but, but remember, we're looking for something that only these five names have. All right, so if you're thinking prophet, we're still in the same category because there are lots of other prophets. So even though we could technically consider all of these a prophet in some way, certainly there are other prophets. What else could they be? Um, is there, oh, Balaam's in there. He's not really an Israelite. Uh, Northern Kingdom. Ooh, Moses is too early for that. What could it possibly be that these five men have in common? Well, I want you to look at a few passages with me. And let's just read a few verses. So we're going to start off here in the book of Numbers. And you'll see it here on the screen, uh, this passage. So starting with Numbers uh, 22.20. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, Rise, go with them. Interesting. If we keep reading in Deuteronomy, we read this verse. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people. I think we're already starting to get the feel, right? We know where this is going. What about Elijah? Arise, go to Zarephath. By the way, Zarephath was like the hometown of Jezebel. Let that just play out in your mind for just a minute. Elijah has been threatened, right? I mean, this is, this is the queen that would love to just off with his head. And God says, arise, go to Zarephath. How about that one? Continuing on, what about Jeremiah? Arise, go to the Euphrates and hide it there. Talking about his belt, hiding his belt at the Euphrates. Interesting. And of course, Jonah, I think we all know this one, right? We could look at 1 2 or 3 2, and we would see exactly the same thing. Arise, go to Nineveh. What do those five names have in common? All five of them received a mission from God. Think about the mission. Balaam got a kind of surprising mission. I mean, he was excited about this mission, right? Because he was going to get well paid for doing this mission. And when God said to him, okay, you can go. I mean, it was like, all right, I am totally in on this. Of course, it didn't quite work out for him the way he wanted it to. But hey, he went and he obeyed God's command. Moses had a difficult mission, leading the people out through the desert. That's something I definitely wouldn't want to sign up for. Elijah had a surprising mission, going to a widow's house outside of the territory of Israel 
and Zarephath. I don't think Elijah ever saw that one coming. Jeremiah had a strange mission, hiding a belt next to the Euphrates River, only to show the deterioration of that belt and be able to use it as a symbol in his prophetic ministry. And of course, Jonah, probably the most familiar to all of us, had a very personally disagreeable mission. I mean, he was not happy about going the first time, and therefore he didn't go. And when the command came a second time, Jonah went, but he still wasn't that happy about doing it, especially when God ended up showing mercy on the people. So all five of these men received this mission, and we're going to do a little bit of language things this morning, right? So all five of these men received the same command, even though in our Bible it sometimes looks slightly different. Here's what it looks like in the Hebrew Bible. All right, so this is great, right? Everybody came this morning wanting to learn some Hebrew, so this is our opportunity. All right, so um, what you're seeing on the screen, uh, the first character... Make, make sure you look left. All right. um, the first character is that thing that looks like a P to you, but it, it should look like a Q because you're reading backwards. All right. So that first character, that's that K from the Kum. And then from there we get this Lech. All right, so Kum, Lech. That, that sounds good, doesn't it? You guys all wanted to say that this morning, didn't you? All right, so go ahead and do it because you're going to want to do it at some point. So here we go. Say it with me. Kum, Lech. All right, we get this very simple structure where God says, kum lech. He says it to Balaam. All right, go ahead and go, Balaam. Go. He says it to Moses. He says it to Elijah. He says it to Jeremiah. He says it to Jonah on two occasions. Kum lech. Now, I'm interested in this construction this morning, although I'm not going to preach about any of the men that I've just talked about. But rather, I'm interested in talking about a kumlech moment in the life of somebody in the New Testament. Now, now hold on, because you're going to say to me, wait a minute, David, the New Testament is written in Greek, so this never appears in the New Testament. Oh, and you're right. The New Testament never says kumlech. But you know what the New Testament says? Rise, go. In fact, it says it in a little section of Acts, and it repeats it in three different situations. And, and this makes me desire to preach a series of sermons, but I'm invited, so I only get to preach one sermon. So I chose my favorite one of these kumlech moments, and we're going to look at it this morning. Um, but first of all, I want to play a little game with you quickly this morning. Now, I've probably already given away too much detail, but let's just do it anyway. Did you guys ever play this game before? Who am I? All right, so here we go. Who am I? I've got some, some descriptors for you here. Who am I? My name actually is not that uncommon in the Bible. In fact, I share it with two other characters in the New Testament and 14 different characters in the Old Testament. That's not bad, right? Um, who are the New Testament characters? Well, one, one was a chief priest, the high priest. The other, well, let's just say... He didn't help our name out any, not making us very famous. Um, a little bit more detail for us. Uh, my name actually means Yahweh has shown grace. He's shown favor. How are we doing on this? Do we know who we're talking about yet? All right, th this will cinch it. All right, I got to baptize the Apostle Paul. 
How are we doing? You know, it's funny. I don't know why, but the story of Paul's baptism, I think, just slips by us. Like, we're like, that's in the Bible? I, I, yeah, I, I definitely remember that, I think. Um, who are we talking about? Well, I, a little help for us here. This screen will really help us out. Hmm, who am I? Ananias. By the way, if you're struggling about the Old Testament, Ananias, remember, in the Old Testament, it's normally Hananiah. It comes with an H, but we're all good. It's all the same name. All right, so I want to talk about Ananias, and we find him almost exclusively in one chapter of the Bible, in Acts chapter 9. And now you know you can look in Acts chapter 8 and find a kumlech moment, and you can look in Acts chapter 10 and see another kumlech moment, and those are sermons for other days. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 9. The story starts off, and we're going to get a little background that's going to help us understand a little bit about this, and we're going to just compare two characters. But they're two characters that we don't need a lot of description on, especially the first one. Because we already know him. He's already been presented to us in the book of Acts as the one who holds the the garments of the ones that are stoning Stephen. This is Saul the Pharisee. Now, when I was growing up, and they always talked about this, you know, holding the garments, I always thought, what a bum rap to get that job. I mean, yeah, here, you hold the clothing. But remember, um, it was extremely illegal what they were doing with Stephen. Sometimes we lose sight of that fact. But remember, this is the same context in which they go to a Pilate and ask for permission. They ask him to crucify Jesus because the Romans didn't take this exactly as a good thing when the Jews decided who they wanted to kill, right? The Romans did not want the Jews just going out and randomly killing anybody that they deemed to be a blasphemer. Why, why would that be? Because guess who the blasphemers were for the Jews? All the Romans, right? So if the Jews had permission to kill blasphemers, they would have killed every Roman they could find on their soil. So the Romans very wisely said, no, no, if you've got people that need to be put to death, bring them to us. We're really good at it. We'll do it. And so it's interesting. They don't kill Jesus. They don't take him out and stone him. They take him to Pilate. But Stephen, somehow, they are so furious that they actually... They commit a crime. They stone him to death. And who's the one who is actually responsible for this? Who's the one that if anybody comes asking, well, he's the one who did it. He's the one who authorized it. It's the guy that's holding everybody's clothing so they can throw the stones. So when we talk about Saul, we have to put him in a context and understand this guy was extremely, extremely out there as far as desiring to really persecute the ones who belong to the way. So we meet him there, but now in chapter 9, we see him breathing out threats. Now, this is important. Threats against whom? What what does your text say? I would read it, but I turned 50 last year, and now anytime I need to read anything, I have to put my glasses on. And I used to... Okay, this is confession time. I used to actually think that it was rather pretentious of people that I saw preaching. They kept putting their glasses on and taking them off and... I no longer judge anyone. Um, Who does does it say that he wanted to persecute here in Acts 9? It says, the disciples. All right, hold on to that thought. We'll come back to that. All right, so 
Saul has plans to persecute. He's persecuted in Jerusalem, and now he's traveling north to Damascus, and he's got permission, and he's going to persecute. Along the way, he has an unexpected encounter. We're not taking the time to unpack all of this, but we know the story, right? Christ meets him along the way, and my favorite part of that story, you know, when he says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, or Saul says, who are you? And he says, I'm Christ, whom you are persecuting. That idea of saying, Saul, you have been persecuting me, the God of all creation. And he strikes him blind. This is an extremely, extremely fearful moment for Saul. He is completely out of his league. He has been persecuting the almighty God. And then we get his kumlech moment. All right, did you notice it? He says, rise and go into the city. All right, I put this text here um, just so that we can see it. So as he receives his instructions, here's what you're supposed to go. We see this passage, and literally what Christ says to him is, all right, Saul, here's what's going on. Kum, lech. He says, come, go into the city. Now, our, our translation, they, they actually did a little, they did this little thing here. They said, go into, okay, that's, that's just enter. Enter the city. So when you're reading in your Bible, you see, go enter, and we have a tendency to, to sort of miss that idea of, you know, come, rise, go into the city. But here's our first kumlech moment that we're looking at as God says to Saul, all right, get up and go into the city. And, and what exactly do I have to do? Well, we find out that even though we don't have it here, here it just says, you will be told what you are to do. Actually, as we move forward, we find out a little bit more about what, what Christ told him that day on the road. But Saul stands up. Of course, now he's blind. He can't see, but he's led by the hand, and he heads into Damascus. And in fact, he goes into Damascus, and he waits for three whole days. We have here, it says... Three days he spent without sight and neither ate nor drank. So for three days he's fasting. And as he waits for this instruction, he doesn't know what exactly is coming. Now we've got another, another character to develop here. Our other character, of course, is Ananias. All right, we know Ananias now. And what do we know about Ananias? What is the first thing the text tells us about Ananias? You see it there? What, what is Ananias? He's a disciple. Now, why is that important? You guys remember? Who was Saul going to persecute? Disciples. And now we've got a disciple in Damascus. Ananias of Damascus is a disciple. He was one of the ones on Saul's list. Now, what, what else do we know about Ananias? Well, nothing else from this passage. We don't get anything else from this passage. And unfortunately, Ananias is not a character that comes up several other places in the Bible. He does come up when Saul gives this testimony. So we do find out a little bit more about him in chapter 22 when Saul describes his testimony. And he mentions Ananias and he tells us just a couple more things. Number one, he tells us that he was very devout according to the law. So we know that he was a man who, was, who, was, who lived in the fear of God. Now, that doesn't mean that he was not a believer. 
It means that he was a believer, but he was also from the Jewish background, and he had lived his life in accordance with the law of God. Now, that doesn't mean that he's perfect. Right? That does not mean that Ananias was somehow the first person to actually walk on the earth and actually keep the whole law. Rather, it means that his life was generally characterized by following the law of God. And then we find out one other thing about him in Acts 22. We find out that he had a good reputation. His testimony was very strong. In other words, probably among the Jews, everybody knew Ananias and everybody respected him. Even if they didn't follow his perspective concerning the Messiah, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, at least they recognized that he was a good man. And I say that because if Paul had arrived in Damascus, according to his plan, and started seeking out disciples, I can almost guarantee you that he would have come across Ananias. Everybody knew him. And even though he was a man who was a devout man according to the law, he would have been a man that everybody, when Saul started asking questions, I'm looking for a disciple, one of those followers of the Messiah, I'm sure people would have said, well, I think you're looking for Ananias. All right, so let's go into this second kumlech moment that we're looking at in this passage. So we've got our characters. We've got Saul of Tarsus, and we've got Ananias. What happens next? Well, remember, we left Saul in some place in Damascus, Fasting and praying, waiting three days. Where do we find Ananias? Well, God comes to Ananias. And here's our passage. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here am I, Lord. Can't get a better response than that. That takes us back to Isaiah, right? Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, kum, lech. I know it didn't say that, but you've got the idea, right? Rise, go, and the Lord sends him. All right, so take a look at this. We'll go ahead and skip past the passage. I know you guys are faster reading than I am, so you've already read the passage. So let's skip forward and take a look at what God tells him. All right, so watch how the information comes in here. The information comes in, and the first thing God tells him is what? Here's the address. All right, so I want you to go into the city and go to the street called Straight. Did you ever stop to think about the Bible actually gives a street name? What a great name for a street, Straight. That obviously was not in Greenville. (laughs) That much is clear. Um, If you visit Damascus today, something that I would recommend against Um, I think it's not on the top list of tourist destinations in 2023. But definitely you can go to the old city of Damascus. At least this is what Google tells me. And you can go to the street called Straight. It still is called Straight. Um, Unfortunately, it's not as straight today as it apparently was when the Romans built. In fact, when the Romans built, they always built two main streets in all of their cities. They had a north-south street and they had an east-west street. And then they let the city develop from that point in nice, neat blocks. Once again, not like Greenville. All right, so go to the street called Straight. All right, remember Ananias lives in Damascus. He knows that street. I mean, that is the, everybody knows that street. All right, so 
I'll go to that street, but that is a long street. It runs through the entire town. Where am I supposed to go? And so God says, okay, go to the house that belongs to Judas. Now, we, don't, we know nothing about this house. By the way, if you do visit, from my understanding, you can go to the house of Judas in Damascus. Of course you can go to the house of Judas in Damascus. And you can also pay the entrance fee, and you can all, I mean, definitely... Um, this is the way the world works, right? But um, we really don't know anything about this house. We don't know if this was a devout Jewish person that perhaps Saul was headed to his house anyway. We don't know if this could be perhaps like an, an inn, a place where travelers frequently stayed. All we know is Ananias must have known exactly which house this was. Judas's house, okay, I've got that. I've got an address. I've got the street. I've got the house. Why am I going to this house? And we get the instructions. All right? We find out that the person that he's supposed to look for is whom? A man from Tarsus. Now, now are you catching this interesting drop of information that comes in? A man from Tarsus, whose name is Saul, by the way. I mean, I, I just love the way the passage develops this because you're kind of feeling like, a man from Tarsus. It's almost as if God is sort of smoothly giving this information out drop by drop because almost he feels like if I started with, hey, I want you to go find Saul. Okay, before we are too hard on Ananias, what would you think? What would you think if you knew you were at the top of the list for this guy? And God says, I want you to go find Saul. I, I'll be honest. I would be the first one saying... I'm sorry, no, I'm not up for that. But God, God brings him here little by little, but the, the moment comes, a man from Tarsus. What man from Tarsus? Saul. And you can already feel Ananias, you know, starting to like back up here, like, like feeling like I'm not comfortable with, with, with the direction this is going. And then God, Christ, adds this extra detail here. All right, he says, because he's praying. Now, now think about this. Do you think Saul had ever prayed before in his life? What was Saul? He was a Pharisee. Did the Pharisees ever pray? All the time. They were the experts at praying. They prayed in public. They prayed so everybody could hear them. I mean... This is Saul's life. He has been a man of prayer. And God says, go find Saul. He's praying. Now, what's, what's radically different is not the fact that Saul is praying. What's radically different is that God actually hears Saul praying. You see, Saul had prayed his entire life. He had always prayed as a Pharisee. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. But all of a sudden, Saul is praying like a publican. That's what catches the attention. He's praying, and God says, and I've heard him. Go and find him. And we get the mission. What is the mission? The mission is to go and heal him, to pray, to lay hands on him, to restore his sight. And what I love most about this part is God says, 
he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Years ago, when we still had small children at home, um, I got a phone call one Sunday afternoon, um, and I have to admit I wasn't thrilled about the phone call. Now, you guys all, many of you know Mike Dodgins. I know Mike um, has, knows many of you, has been here many times. And I, and I love and respect Mike greatly. You know what comes after that sentence, right? But, I didn't ask his permission to tell you this story, but this is kind of a little bit of revenge, so I, I think it's okay. <laughs> Mike called me a Sunday, one Sunday afternoon, and he says, Hey, David, um, <laughs> that, that kind of nervous laugh. Those of you who know Mike, you know that laugh, you know that, that nervous laugh. He says, um, this, like, this guy called here, he says his wallet has been stolen, he has no money, he has no place to stay, but he's in Alicante, where you live. I've given him your phone number. I was not thrilled. Uh, thank you, Mike. I really, I really appreciate that. At this point, there's no backing out, right? I mean, this guy's going to call me, and hey, I was given your phone number, and I can't deny it. I know it's true, and I'm going to be stuck leaving my you know, little kids and my wife and going out and trying to help Two guys that I don't know who in the world they are, what their story is. Anyway, that's a long story about everything that happened there. If you're interested, see me sometime and I'll tell you the story. Um, an interesting one. Anyway, all that to say, um, I kind of can get a feel for where Ananias is sitting at this moment as God tells him, oh, by the way, I told this Saul guy from Tarsus, you know, the one that came here to persecute disciples like you, I mentioned to him your name that you'd be passing by to uh, see him this afternoon. Now, before I go too far in that line, I do want to say, remember what the name Ananias means? Do you remember that? God shows his grace. Isn't that interesting? That Saul realized he had been persecuting Christ. And Christ says to him, I want you to go and wait because this guy named God shows grace, he's going to come and he's going to lay his hands on you. Oh, this wasn't about name-dropping, you know, Ananias. I'm going to make you do what I want you to do by telling him that it's you who's coming. This is all about the message that God is giving to this man who's just had a personal encounter with Christ for the first time in his life. So, here we go. Ananias hears this command. And what we would like to do is have Ananias rise and go. All right, here I am. I'm out of here. But that's not exactly what happens. But first of all, I want to look at some practical implications based on what we've seen so far. Um, first of all, I want you to notice something about how God works in this situation. I want you to notice, first of all, that, that God doesn't have to ask permission of Ananias before he sets up his plan. Did you notice that God did not do what I think probably we would have done in our normal workflow. Our normal workflow would have been, all right, um, I would like to send Ananias over to Saul. I think he's the right man. I think his name is perfect, if for no other reason. Um, let me go and check with Ananias first, see if he has any other obligations on his calendar. And if he doesn't, then that'd be fantastic if he would go. 
God sets up the whole plan in motion and says, all right, Ananias, this is what you're going to do. Now, I, I am not in any way trying to suggest that this is the way we should work with one another. This is not a call for strong authority of, you know, just, you know, pushing our, our agenda through. But then again, we're forgetting something if we forget the fact that God is not our equal. He is our Lord and our master. He has all authority to say, kum, lech. And so he tells Ananias, here's what's going down. This is what you're going to do. But it also catches my attention as I look at this passage that God hasn't run through the entire plan for Ananias. He lays out the first step that he's supposed to take. I mean, when he goes and sees Saul and he, and he heals him, what's going to happen at that moment? When Saul opens his eyes and can see clearly again, what's he going to do? I mean, we'd like to think that these last three days have been transforming for Saul, but what if they haven't been? What if Saul opens his eyes and says, it's you, grab him. And yet God has revealed the first step and says, Ananias, there's the step. Kum, lech. So the story continues. The story continues. Ananias goes to the house. He walks in and notice, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, first of all, we've got Ananias asking questions. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who will call on your name. Ananias knows what's going on, right? He's got all the facts on the table. And God says, go, notice, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So here's Ananias, and he brings his doubts and fears before the Lord. And he says, okay, I know what you're asking me to do, but hold on. I know about Saul's past. We, we don't know how long Ananias had lived in Damascus. Some people look at that word that he dwelt in Damascus and they say he was, you know, he had lived there all his life. Others suggest that perhaps as that diaspora from Jerusalem happened, that he had left perhaps early on. He left and he had established himself there in Damascus. We really don't know. But definitely, Ananias has his contacts, and he knows exactly what's happening back in Jerusalem. He knew all about Saul's past actions in Jerusalem. In fact, he knows all about Saul's present plans in Damascus. And I, and I have to admit, I'm really impressed by Ananias. Because if I knew all about Saul's past actions in Jerusalem, and I knew all about his present plans in, Jer in Damascus, you know where I would be? Spain, of course. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, why would I stay in Damascus where somebody could give me over? And yet here's Ananias, and he's where God put him. But he's struggling, saying, God, I'm not sure I understand your plan. But you know what? 
Ananias really didn't know about? He knew about the past. He knew about the present. But you know what he didn't know about? The future. Who knew about that? God did. And he lays out the rest of the book of Acts in rough terms. He says, he's going to be my chosen instrument for the Gentiles to stand before kings and even the children of Israel. That's the rest of the book of Acts. And God just sort of sketches it out quickly and says, trust me on this one, Ananias. I've got my plan. So once again, what do we learn from this part of the story? Well, I look at this part of the story and I say, definitely as I I look at this part of the story, I realize that God is not obligated to tell us everything that he is going to do. God doesn't have to sit down with Ananias and say, okay, Ananias, um, here's what you, what's going to happen. You're going to go and you're going to do this. And as a result of this, this is what's going to happen. As a result of that, this is what's going to happen. Now, God can do that. And in fact, the fact that he lays out as much as he lays out for Ananias is an interesting fact in this story. But the truth is, God doesn't, isn't required to do that. We are never in a position of demanding information from God. Rather, what we need to do is to take our doubts to God and then trust in God. Now, I put this first point here. Ananias took his doubts to God directly because I just want to quickly compare Ananias and Jonah for a minute. Remember, we're dealing with characters who both had a kumlech experience. And what did Jonah do? Well, well he arose. He got the first command, right? All right? He arose... But he didn't go, he fled. And that's exactly what the text says when you look at it. He arose and fled. He went the other direction. Why? Because he said, I don't don't get your plan, God. I, I don't like your plan, and I'm not going to do it. He fled from God. In fact, even the second time when he went, he went, but we all know how that story ends, right? He is, well, actually, we don't know how it ends, we, we know the next step in the story, right? He's there bitter with God, saying, God, I knew you were going to do this. That's why I didn't want to come in the first place. I knew you were a compassionate God. You know, it's funny, that statement, because if God weren't a compassionate God, where would Jonah be? Yeah. Whatever happens to things that are in fish's bellies, I don't want to go there. But... The fact that God was compassionate was the only reason Jonah was alive. And yet here he is complaining to God saying, I knew it. I knew it. I didn't like the plan from the beginning. You know, if Jonah had brought that out in the first part, can you imagine the beginning of the book? God says, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. And he says, you know, God, I'm not sure that's a good idea because you're a compassionate God. What if you, what if you forgive them? And God could have started from the beginning with, Hey, how could you say that to me? I'm a compassionate God. And we could have had the story of Jonah look extremely differently from the way it looks in our Bible. But here's Ananias taking his doubts directly to God. Sometimes I think we're afraid to actually pray honestly. But we should. We have the pattern in the Psalms. If we're, if we're feeling down, what should we do? Take it to God. Tell him why you feel down. If you're feeling betrayed, what should you do? Take it to God and say, God, this person betrayed me. 
And as we bring our doubts and our fears to God, what happens? Look at the pattern in the Psalms. You'll see it over and over and over again. The psalmist starts off complaining. I don't know. Talking about all the negative things that have happened. And what does God, how do almost all those Psalms end? They end in praise, adoration. And this is just a beautiful point here is Ananias takes this directly to God and says, God, I know about his past and his present. And God says, yes, but you don't know about his future. And so Ananias takes his doubts to God directly. And then once again, Ananias realizes he must simply trust as God reveals the steps before him. I put this statement here. A lack of information is always an invitation to trust. And as soon as I wrote that, I thought, I don't know. I don't want that to be something as an excuse that somebody uses with somebody else. Like, I'm not going to give you information so that you trust me. I mean, that's, that's not the, the direction we're heading in this, in this message. But the idea of saying God doesn't always give us all the information spelled out. Because you know what? If we had all the information spelled out, then faith doesn't really look like faith anymore. Faith, for it to be faith, many times has to have some pieces of the puzzle missing. But God has given us enough that we have to trust that what he's given us is right and then follow his commands. Well, let's quickly move on to the last part of the story here. The last part of the story. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, I I don't know if there are more beautiful words in all of the book of Acts. Brother Saul. I wonder if he, like, Rehearsed that on his way over. Like, what, what am I going to say to him? Uh, Pharisee Saul, Rabbi Saul, um, Mr. Saul. Um, and he comes down with this, Brother Saul. What a beautiful, beautiful statement. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, was strengthened. So the end of this story, as we finish it out, Ananias shows up, and he goes through the process, exactly what God had given him to do. God had said, arise, go! He's waiting for you. And Ananias arose, and went, and he simply, in simple obedience to God, greeted him, healed him, and baptized him. The Holy Spirit filled the Apostle Paul that day as Ananias embraced him as a, as a brother in Christ. As I look at this ending to the story, once again, I have some basic observations, some really simple, practical observations as I look at this story. And I notice how Ananias submits to God's plan even though he couldn't understand it. I mean, I think that there was definitely room for a few more questions if he had wanted to ask a few more questions. Um, I also work as a professor besides um, pastoring, and one of my favorite things to do is ask students for questions. Because it's the best way to end class. Because nobody ever asks any questions. 
So you say, any questions? And there's silence. A few, those are the few moments that there's actually silence in the classroom. And then you say, okay, we're done. Let's go. Um, but there was room for Ananias. I mean, he must have had a thousand other questions for, for the Lord. But, 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 but wait a minute, Lord. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I've got what you want me, but I, I, why me? And, and, and why, why him? I mean, couldn't there have been any? I mean, is that really? I mean, there must have been questions in his mind. But I think Ananias swallows those questions and just says, okay, Lord, I understand what you're asking. I'm going to do it. And that submission and trust leads to obedience. And so Ananias goes and he does the simple thing that God has asked him to do. All right, let's bring all of this together. And I want to talk about this. Okay, hold on. I I forgot I put another statement there and I'd better mention that. I said, a conviction of God's leading brings an assurance of God's provision and protection as long as we're within his will. I've lived that experience. I know that to be true. And if you think about your life, you know it's true as well. A lot of times, we imagine, we say, this is, this is a bad idea. You know how many things could go wrong with this? And I, I'm not calling for, you know, some sort of reckless um, action which would actually put us in danger. But I'm asking, I'm, I'm seeing in this story the simple principle of saying, you know what, if God is commanding me to do something, I'm not going to second guess God. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And God will provide and protect according to his will. Now, you may be thinking right now in your, mo- in your mind, for example, what about the story about Jim Elliot and those other four men in the jungles of Ecuador? What about them? They went and they were slaughtered. But I have to admit, when I look at that story, that they were not slaughtered outside of God's will. And in fact, did God preserve and protect them? Oh, yes. Because I'm looking forward to the day I get to meet those men when I'm standing with them in, this, in the streets of heaven because God has perfectly preserved and protected them. Oh, their, their earthly life perished. But then again, so did everybody else who was living in the past. I mean, we're all going to die, but I promise you, God will provide and protect for everything that he calls us to do. Now, as I look at this story, I want to simply take a step back and talk about kumlech moments outside the Bible. I want to talk about kumlech moments in which God comes to you and says, kum, lech, Get up, go, I have a plan for you. And I don't want to skip past this point because I think this is a very important point to make. It may be that somebody is listening to this message this morning and you felt that call in your heart. You felt that calling for God to say, I want you to go. I want you to go. It may be going somewhere, maybe on the other side of town. It may be going somewhere on the other side of the country. It may be going somewhere on the other side of the world. 
And I definitely want to say to you today, if, if you've felt that in your heart, you know what? You may have some Ananias thoughts in your, in your chest right now. You may be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not sure that's really a good idea. I don't think that that will work. And you may have all of your arguments against God. Let me tell you this morning, if you've heard that call, the best thing you can possibly do is to get up and go. Now, that doesn't mean that tomorrow you're on the flight. That's where we get nervous, right? Remember what happened with Saul's cum lech moment? He said, I want you to go and wait. And, And it's fascinating. Three days? Now, there could be several explanations for the three days. It may be that God came to Ananias and told him, and Ananias said, uh, let me give it some time. <laughs> I kind of doubt that. The truth is, when I read the story, I get the feeling that Ananias, after he got his concerns out and God answered him, Ananias went. But God gave that time. And sometimes God gives us time in, middle, in the middle of this process. And I think it's one of the hardest things for us. Because sometimes it's that nervous energy that we're like, okay, I, I've got to go. Some of you, God may be saying, I want you to go, but I want you to get prepared first. I want, you to, I want you to get the training that you need. Don't just run out. It may be that God wants you to wait, but don't lose sight of his calling. But at the same time, I don't want to miss the fact that not all of us can go. I grew up in this church, and God called me, and I arose and went. That doesn't make me different from the rest of you. That simply is my context in which God wants me to serve. And your context is a different context. And so I'm not preaching this sermon just in the perspective of those who are going to leave and go out somewhere else. I want to talk about your kumlech moment here. Because we all have them. We all have that moment when we're sitting at the restaurant... And we think, you know what? I really ought to talk to my server. I really ought to say something. It's as if God is saying, Kum, lech, say something. And we start saying, well, you know know what? I mean, I would love to say something. I really would. But, I mean, they really look busy. I don't think they have enough time. we, We are incredible excuse makers. I am amazed at my capacity to make excuses. I am a first-class excuse maker. But when God gives us a kumlech moment, let's take it. Let's take it. Let's say, God, I, I, don't, know, I, I don't know how to start that conversation. Okay, that, that's legitimate. And God can help us and say, okay, here's how you're going to start that conversation. But a lot of times it's just going to come down to our saying, all right, I'm going to stand up And I'm going to go. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. It may be that God has a kumlech moment for you because he wants to move you the next step in your spiritual life. Maybe there's something you need to leave behind and you've been making excuses to God because you just say, there's no way I can actually do that. You know what? God is just saying, kumlech, trust in me. Allow me to do in your life what I want to do. And that's how I want to focus this missions conference. I want us to definitely be involved with praying. We need to pray. We can definitely be involved in giving. We certainly 
can be involved as a church in sending. But let's be involved in going as well, whether it's going to the foreign field and serving there, or even rising up and going here and serving here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Father, for the fact that you, in your grace and mercy, continue to reach out to us. You continue to give us opportunities to serve you. We are not worthy to serve you. And yet, you stoop to use us. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to be submitted to you, that your name would be glorified through our lives. That is our greatest privilege in this world. I pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.